Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we continue our study through the book of Romans as we take a look at how the Spirit moves in the believer's life. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 as we look through verses 1 through 27 as Pastor Joshua LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, The Spirit Works to Make Us Holy. Romans chapter 8. We'll get to that here in just a moment while you're turning. I do need to take a couple minutes here just to pass along uh, some things. Uh, For one, last Sunday at the uh, church family business meeting, uh, we voted to have some nominations. I'll be passing those names on to you. I still got to do some interviews with the individuals, and then I'll pass those names on to you. Um, But secondly, Y'all know that we had uh, been doing the live stream for a a period of time and then we stopped it. And the reason why we stopped it was for uh, two main reasons. Number one, we did not want to create a situation that created a temptation, if you know what I mean. Uh, The possibility of maybe waking up on a Sunday morning and you're just tired and just think, oh, I'll just lay here in bed and watch the live stream from there, which would rob your soul, rob us as a church family, the assembling together, the life of a church family fellowshipping together. It's just, it's critical. It's absolutely critical, not only for you and I individually growing in Christ for his purposes to be fulfilled, but also for the kingdom of God to move forward and us to be able to do these things. But we, we had also learned that um, around the country there were individuals and they, they actually got a hold of us and communicated and they meant it completely as a compliment, um, but who communicated and said, hey, we, we love what you're doing. We're tuning into the live stream and we're just gonna do that you know, instead of go find a church family to, to gather with. And they meant it as a compliment. Some were new believers. We do believe that there has even been at least one who came to faith in Christ through the live stream, which just rejoice. I mean, just absolutely rejoice. And so we did not wanna create a situation where we were keeping people from going to gather in a church family. So we, we paused it for a, a bit. But I believe we have sufficiently made those, communicated those truths, and we've, we've learned of some circumstances. We've learned that there are folks um, even around here in this community um, that uh, some are you know, afraid to walk through the doors of a church building and they were willing to tune in. Some have, uh, even within the Catholic Church, though they're technically open back up, they have, they're only allowing a fraction of people in, and some were tuning into the live stream. We've, we've learned that across the country and even down in Belize, you know, we've got to partner with be- believers down there that, uh, and by the way, in Belize, uh, the latest update we've had is that police are even coming in on some of the worship services counting the people there, disrupting service. If there's more than the legally allotted, some would be removed or they be closed down. And their live, the live stream is a help to them. So seeing some opportunities there, wanting the word to go out, we've decided to start back up again. So wanted you to know why we do what we do, the philosophy behind why we do. So may God bless this work, this opportunity that's there. We're turning to Romans 8 again 
Today will also be, uh, there'll be some more overview that takes place. And so I'm going to read a larger section. I'm going to read the first 27 verses this morning, and then we'll talk about the whys and how it divides up. So if you got a Bible, Romans chapter eight, if you want to begin with me in verse one, we'll read and then I'll pray. Verse one, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, but the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, 
But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, Lord, it is, it is not lost to us. Lord, the gravity of what we are doing. Lord, that literally wars are being fought in the heavenly realm right now over what will happen in these moments. And we're pretty well helpless. So Father, we ask that you will come and give us grace. We ask God that you will hallow your name. We ask that you will bring your kingdom to come, that you will build your church. Lord, that as we finite, weak humans engage in activity that is so far above us, we lack the strength to do these things, that God, you will come and work so as to accomplish your purposes. Lord, a bunch of wretched sinners are gathered in this room, but you give us access to you by the blood of your son. And Lord, we glorify you for that. We'll worship you forever. And we pray, oh God, have mercy and work so that we are drawn to know you more deeply. Turn our eyes away from our ambitions, our lust, our desires, and God, fix our eyes on you. Bring our hearts to be stirred to worship you by receiving your word, your truths, and Lord, responding to them in the way that you call us to. So please, Lord, come and work. Give me grace to do the work you have for me, to feed, enable me, oh God. So please bless this time, and we pray this through Christ. Amen. In this world, we often see this principle of cause and effect. Cause and effect. Newton's third law of motion, which I'm sure you're just thrilled to hear about in a sermon, is for every action there is, you know how to finish it, an equal and opposite reaction. You fire a rifle, the bullet propels out the barrel, there is recoil going backwards. You step on a teeter-totter, the other side rises. There is cause and effect. Now this leaves Newton's third law, but just speaking of cause and effect, you get hit by a bus, it's gonna hurt. There's gonna be an effect. If you have no effect, you are not hurt, but then say you got hit by a bus, nobody's going to believe you. The cause and effect relationship is so real. You pour gasoline on a fire, the fire gets bigger. Cause and effect. Well, there is a cause and effect relationship between, and I'm gonna define the terms, justification and sanctification. If justification occurs, sanctification will happen. And let me say that in, in a simpler way. Those are the big words we've been seeing the Bible use to define these things. What the Bible tells us, the primary central message of the word of God to us, your sins have made a separation between you and your creator. You and I are facing an eternity of wrath unless we find some way to have our sin problem dealt with and be made right with God. What God has done, how he has worked is he sent his son in order to make a way for you to come and be made right with him. The blood of the cross, the resurrection, Jesus has accomplished what is necessary. What God now calls to all humanity 
is to turn to him, not in the way we decide, but in the way that he has told us. To repent of our sins, that is to turn away from them and to trust in Christ, call out to him in order to be saved. And what the Bible says is, if you will do this, if even right now where you are sitting in this moment, you can be justified in the next five seconds, if you will turn to Christ in your heart and call out to him, in that moment, you will be made right with God, forgiven of your sins and granted eternal life. That moment where you're made right with God, that's justified. And then what Romans has been teaching us is that once that happens, once somebody truly becomes a Christian, not just in name only, but truly united to God, that a process begins of growth, life change, journeying towards more holiness. That's the process of sanctification. Okay, well, what scripture shows us is that there is a cause and effect relationship between those. When God justifies someone, he, there is an effect. There are things that happen in this justification that produce a growing in Christ. You will be changed. At the moment you turn to Christ, you belong to God. You were made a possession of God. You become the project of God. He sends his spirit to come indwell you, abide with you. And if the spirit of the living God comes to you, there will be change that is brought about. We're going to sin. We're going to fall. We're going to struggle. There is a war, but there will be progress. And the reason that it will happen is because you have God living within you and God does not fail. Cause and effect. Well, the section that we're entering of Romans 8 today, let me kind of show you a little bit of where we're going and what's, what's in this passage. We're going to see the, the certainty of the effect by what he has done in the cause. And we're going to see kind of the text make a transition here. I've mentioned to you that I've got Romans 8 divided into four parts. Um, we started last week in verses one through four. Part number one is no condemnation. What he's doing in that section is there's a quick review, about three and a half verses, a review of justification, things that we have seen. Remember, Romans is laid out as a long and just being honest, complex argument, okay? It takes about 20 minutes to read Romans 1 through 7, like if you don't stop and you just read it out loud. So if you're making an argument to somebody, I'm not talking about like being mean, I'm talking a logical argument, okay? You're reasoning with somebody. And you go on for 20 minutes and you begin with premises and then you establish therefores, and then in this complicated argument, the therefores compound on one another. Multiple therefores come together to make more therefores and it gets complicated. At some point, you need to review some of the conclusions you have come to. That's what's happening in the first three and a half verses there. There's a quick review of things we have seen, justification, and then there's a transition. Transition at the end of verse four that then leads us into new material material we've not yet studied in this, in this passage. So we're, we're going to see this highlighted. I'm going to show the transition, and then we're going to kind of look at an overview 
of the next section that we'll be looking at. So you can pick up with me in verse two. I'm gonna briefly run through the, the remaining verses in the first four verses there to show this review. So start with me in verse two. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now remember, as we have seen previously, the word law used right here in this verse, it's not talking about a list of rules. It's more using the word law, kind of like I talked about Newton's third law of motion or the second law of thermodynamics. What is that? It's a principle. It's a principle at play in the world. It is explaining the fact that the law of the spirit of life is speaking to a reality that you who are in Christ, you are now in a new principle. There is a new way that you relate to God. You are in a new covenant. There's a new condition that the spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, you who are in Christ, you're in a situation where the spirit of God is now giving you life. You were once under the law of sin and death. The principle, when we were in the flesh, before we turned to Christ, the Spirit has delivered us out of this and into this. But look at the dichotomy. Death, life, flesh, spirit. Verse three. For what the law could not do. Now the word law is used as referring to the law we were born under. That list of commandments, the law of God, the covenant of works that we talked about, that situation where we're born into obey God perfectly and you will live, disobey, break his law and you will die. What the law, what that situation could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son. All right, so look at it there. That law that we were once under, the Bible calls it weak. Now remember from Romans 7, it was a major point we looked at. The law is not bad. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. It's righteous, holy, good. It shows us justice and righteousness. There was nothing wrong with the law. But that situation we were born under, the law it is unable to save the people who break it. That's a problem for you and I who have broken it. You break the law, what does the law communicate? Justice. The law is the list of commandments and here's what happens if you break the law. There is punishment, namely death. So there's nothing wrong with the law of God. It was totally just. But the law does not have mercy. The law doesn't spell out how you have forgiveness if you break one of the commandments. And so the gospel is greater. The gospel is superior. What God has done in Christ is of much greater glory. We have great reason to rejoice in the gospel because it offers grace. It offers mercy. There's a remedy for those who break the law. It offers grace. And so what the law could not do, God did. How did he do it? Look at the rest of the verse. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus came as a man in real flesh. He did not just appear to be in flesh, just appear to be a man. He truly came as a man, but not sinful man. 
Jesus lived a life of perfection, keeping the law of God. He never fell in even a thought. There was never a moment where Jesus had anything less than the greatest of motives in his heart. This made Jesus the perfect man. As the perfect man, he is the only one who could offer his life as a substitute. Listen, you take the greatest human from history, like let's just say it was John the Baptist. John the Baptist, let's say that in a moment of prayer, John the Baptist had prayed and said, Father, I will give my life as an offering for sinners. You can take me and I will lay it down. What would the father have said to John the Baptist? He would have said, that's maybe a nice sentiment there, Johnny boy, but your life does not have the worth. You're, you are not perfect. You're not able to save even a single one because what it takes to be right with God is complete righteousness only someone who was perfectly and completely righteous would be able to offer their life as a sacrifice. Guys, it's Jesus or nobody. It's Jesus or nobody. If Jesus had had even one moment where he fell in an unrighteously angry or lustful or whatever thought, you and I would be destined for hell. It's Jesus or nobody. Salvation depends completely on him. Look, every moment that he was tempted was a moment of eternal consequence. Jesus kept the law of God perfectly so that he could offer it as a substitute. Our sins onto Christ, his law keeping, his righteousness counted as ours, which is what the rest of the verse says there. He kept the law as a righteous man and gave his life as an offering for sin. So in, in one sense, we, you do need to understand this. We say very often we are not saved by works. We're saved by grace. When we back up one step, you do need to know that there is a way you and I are saved by works, but it ain't yours. It's Jesus's. The law keeping that Jesus accomplished is offered to us. We receive the benefits of that by faith as an act of God's grace. So in this way, God condemned sin. Remember, God has accomplished salvation in a righteous way. God did not act in a shady kind of way to break principles of righteousness. God did not from heaven just say, all right, you got, this didn't work out. Let's just pretend like it never happened. I'll just bring some of you into heaven and we'll just go on for there. That's not the way that this can work. Now, listen, there's nobody above God who could have said to him, hey, now you, you broke the law. Now I'm going to call you to account. There's no one that big. God does as he pleases. But God in himself is completely and wholly righteous. He will not break his own, his own standards of righteousness. So God brought about salvation, but doing it in a way that was completely just and upheld his own principles. Sin had to be condemned in the flesh. So what Jesus did is took that condemnation onto himself so that all who turn to Christ 
can receive the no pardon. Excuse me, the pardon of no condemnation. Now look at verse four. So that the requirement of the law, because this had to be, this had to happen. The law had to be fulfilled, might be fulfilled in us. Who's it for? Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is where we begin to see the transition. There is a cause and effect relationship here that begins to be shown and it carries through all the rest of this passage. Cause and effect. The law is fulfilled on our behalf by Jesus keeping the law and it being counted as ours. Okay, but who is it kept for? Who are the recipients of Jesus's law keeping? Okay, so now we, we know earlier in the book of Romans, we, we have seen how do you receive salvation, forgiveness of sins? The answer is one where we can say by faith. We got to know what that true faith looks like. It's repentant faith, okay? But it's, it's faith, believe. That's how you receive this grace. But notice how verse four words it because now we've moved on from that foundation. Now we're getting into deeper and more complex things. And it's in this complex things that some of the cause and effect is being revealed. So who are those who have Jesus's law keeping counted as theirs? It is for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There is a cause and effect relationship. Now listen, some read that and they would just immediately say something like, well, that sounds like we're saved by works. You know, I walk by the spirit and then I get eternal life. Then I get saved. But as you walk down through this text over and over again, ask this question, which comes first? What is the cause and what is the effect? Over and over again, like fleshly prideful religion, false religion, you'll, you'll notice this over and over again. It always boils down to I am am enough. I am able to accomplish my righteousness. I do good things. I make myself good. And then I get life. Then I get the, the, the benefits of these things. But what you will find over and over is the Bible showing us that it is actually reversed. Instead, what it is, is that we receive graces from God, forgiveness of sins. We receive life. We receive his spirit and this is the cause and it produces the effect of walking by the spirit, living according to the will of God. If, if you notice this, as you go down through the text and you come to every verse and you'd ask this question, which comes first over and over again, what we see is the cause is the work of God giving grace. The effect is the walking with Christ. Look at verse five. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, now watch that. The people who, here's their identity, they're according to the spirit. What do they do? What's the effect? Their minds are set on the things of the spirit. Which caused which? Did I cause my receiving of the spirit or are we given the spirit and he produces effects 
of walking by the Spirit. Over and over, down through this passage, you will see this description of which comes first, the cause and effect. Look at verses 9 and 10. So he says, that he's speaking to Christians. This is going to be a critical thing we talk about. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Are you alive because you made yourself that way? Or are you alive because the Spirit dwells in you, whom you received by grace? Okay, so which comes first? Do I produce life or does the Spirit produce life? It is critical that we understand the cause and effect. Look at verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. How do we know the identity? How would we know who truly are the sons and daughters of God? They are those who in effect is happening. They are walking by the Spirit. You see, this is so important. God spends a lot of time on this. I mean, and you may be saying, there are a couple things we may look at today where you say, okay, pastor, that's great. Let's move on. We've already seen this in the book of Romans. I'm bound by the word of God. When God repeats it, I got to repeat it. We have already seen cause and effect. And we have seen the fact that the issue is who gets the glory. Who gets the glory in this? If I make myself righteous and I produce life, then I will credit myself and I will congratulate myself on what a good job I'm doing. But if by grace we receive forgiveness of sins, his spirit and the spirit in us produces life. And then anytime I know that I accomplish any good work, the Holy Spirit has been at work to lead me into these things. Who do we give glory to? Who do we give thanks to? It's not ourselves. It is him. Those who receive the grace of justification, who receive salvation, they will go on not to walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who are in Christ will be those who are led to walk according to the spirit. You do not become saved by walking in the spirit. God saves and then he leads us, enables us to walk by the spirit. You don't get eternal life by being good. We receive eternal life by grace. And then this leads us into a different kind of walk. You do not produce walking by the spirit. The spirit in us produces walking by the spirit. Let me see if I can make this distinction more clear. I am going to ramble a little bit, but I learned it from Paul, so I'll blame it on him. He says, look at, look at the way that it's spoken. He says, so that the requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us. Who's the us? When we see these things in the Bible, this, this really is a critical biblical matter. Uh, there really is a way that you can get what seems to be just such a small thing wrong from the Bible and end up in complete false religion. And it just happens all the time. It happens all the time. You have been to the funeral where someone stands up to address the crowd that is there. And the person speaking uses a lot of scripture, talks about promises from the Bible, 
But this person never explains that there is a distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are not. Those who are the recipients of the promise and those who are not. And what's the effect? It leads the whole room, every even the unconverted people, all to conclude, I must be fine, I must have eternal life, and everyone goes home with a false assurance. I've mentioned numerous times that in my earliest childhood, we grew up in churches that did not preach the gospel. But there was a lot of Bible used. And I can still remember being a kid and the preachers standing up and there would be these promises of the Bible, happy promises of the Bible spoken. Like, we are forgiven of our sins. We have eternal life. If God is for us, who can be against us? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back and take you to myself. Amen. See you next week. Over and over, we can list these promises, but what was never explained is that there is something that must happen where we become the recipients of the promises. There is a distinction between those who have the promises and those who don't. So what is the distinction? Who is the us in Romans 8? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks and he says, you are the light of the world. Who's the you? Every person on the planet? Every person who ever hears the verse? Anybody who ever attends church? Guys, hundreds of times, hundreds of times the Bible addresses this all the time, calling our attention to see the distinction between who the promises are for. It is for those who are in Christ. We see it all through this passage and, and actually it, it, it's made a point that comes up over and over again. For instance, look down to verse 13 to see how this is emphasized. This is one of the stronger ones, I think, in all the Bible. Verse 13, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. All right, but what if I say I'm saved? It's like the guy who claims to get hit by a bus and there's no scratch, not believing it. Look at the rest of the verse. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is not putting to death sins that makes you a Christian. Being a Christian who has the spirit of God produces something, produces the kind of man, woman who will follow Christ and put sins to death. So there is an us. There is a distinction that the Bible is always making. We have to communicate this distinction. We are lying to people. If we just show up in places and just talk about the happy promises and never explain, there is a way you must come to be made right with God. There are a lot of different ways that the Bible speaks of this group of people, those who are truly in Christ. Look at how verse four describes them. Who, who are they? They are those, the us, are the those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's a distinction made. Those who are truly in Christ are those who will show that they are in Christ. How do they show it? They walk according to the way of life of someone who has the Holy Spirit living within them. They do not live in a pattern of consistent, ongoing fleshliness. So listen, this is another title 
for the Christian. Another title for the Christian is someone who does not walk according to the flesh, but walks according to the spirit. So I, I just, to clarify, if anyone leaves here today and thinks I make myself righteous, I, may, I commend myself to God. I need to be good and then I will be right with God. You have not paid attention and heard these words. What the Bible is saying is this. You must turn to Christ, receive the grace of salvation, and God will begin things in you that lead to a change of life. There is cause and effect. The Spirit of God comes and He produces change. So there is a title here. Another title for the Christian is someone who walks according to the Spirit. It's not just a title. This is a description of their lives. Just like if someone claims to be a bodybuilder. Bodybuilder is not just a title. Bodybuilder is talking about a life and behavior. If someone comes in who clearly is not working on the body, claims to be a bodybuilder, we might question whether they're really doing bodybuilding work. A Christian is someone who follows Christ. A bodybuilder is someone who builds the body. A Christian is someone who is following Christ. This is a title. This is a description. This is a way of showing the truth. It's not salvation by works. It is explaining the character, the effects of someone who is in Christ. There is just no room in the Bible for the man who gets saved, forgiven of sins, but then does not go on to be changed. There's no room in the Bible for that. There's room for problems, but there's no room for not being changed. There is cause and effect if the very spirit of the living God comes to dwell inside of you, he will produce something. And that right there is the transition. It's the transition in the passage from reviewing justification to then move us into the new material we're about to look at. The first three and a half verses reminding us, now we come to this transition. The justified Christian is a man, a woman, a child who is walking according to the Spirit. Now, we haven't heard much about the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans yet. So where did he come from? What's it mean to walk according to the flesh? That's the next section. That's what comes in verses four through 27. The Holy Spirit produces sanctification and gets us ready for glorification. That's point number two. So now let's think through this section. In seven and a half chapters, we have not heard hardly anything about the Holy Spirit. I believe there are only, I didn't go back and look, but I believe there are only two references. In seven and a half chapters, there are only two references to the Holy Spirit. And there's a reason for that. Part of that would be a sermon for another day, but it's part of the nature of who he is. He is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus. The Father has ordained that all of history would be ordered for the exalting of the name of his son. The father has ordered all that has happened and all that is going, hap to, oh, going to happen so as to bring attention 
to shine the spotlight onto his son. He is magnifying the name of Jesus and in that the father is glorified. The Holy Spirit does not work to exalt himself. That's a whole sermon, whole study itself. I'm resisting the temptation to go down that road. He does not work to glorify himself. Jesus said he works to glorify me because he is the spirit of God. And the will of God is to exalt the name of Jesus. Now this gets into more of the mystery. Like, yeah, this is confusing, mind-blowing kind of stuff. Just as you have a spirit, but your spirit is not its own individual person, God has a spirit, but he is his own distinct person. Yeah, it's confusing, okay? The, the, the infinite God is revealing himself to us. It's not gonna be easy. Father, Son, and Spirit, three distinct persons united as one God. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of Jesus. And in a mystery, the Father ordains. And the Father has ordained that all things would work for the exalting of the name of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit, this is what he engages in. He works in this world to exalt the name of Jesus. And so part of what I'm trying to show here is the glorifying of Christ is the work that he does. So seven and a half chapters have been preaching here what Christ has accomplished for our redemption. The name of Jesus has been being exalted throughout the book of Romans. But what we enter into now is a section where the work of the Holy Spirit is then expounded upon. So another major, just major component of our sanctification. In fact, if you were gonna ask me, what do I think is the most important truth about sanctification? Starting in chapter six, we've been learning all of these truths about what God is doing in order to make us holy. Out of all of them, what do I think is the most important one? I think it's this one. I think he saves the most important one for last, that we have been given his spirit and he is working in us in order to bring this about. The great cause of your sanctification is that God comes to live within you and he is transforming you, he is at work. If you remember back in chapter seven, I told you that the word law was used 23 times in that chapter, so what's the main idea, okay? In Romans eight, one through 27, the word spirit is used 22 times. What's the main idea? This is what we are being shown here. There we are shown nine ways that the Holy Spirit works to sanctify us. So if you're a note taker, here's the part where you get giddy. Let me list them off to you. Nine ways that the Holy Spirit brings transformation. Number one, the Spirit changes our course of life. We see that in verses one through eight. And if I go too fast, you can always get these after the sermon. Number two, the Spirit enables us to please God. We see that in verses six through eight. And number three, the Holy Spirit indwells us. We see that in verse nine. The Spirit gives us life in verses 10 through 11. Number five, the Spirit empowers us to put sin to death. We see that in verse 13. Number six, the Spirit leads us. We see that in verse 14. 
Number seven, the Spirit testifies to us of our adoption. Verses 15 to 17. Number eight, the Spirit leads us to suffer with Christ. We see that in verse 17. And then lastly, number nine, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. And we see that in verse 26. So I'm going to spend the rest of the time today just kind of in an overview way, talking about all of this work, what he's doing in us. Throughout Romans, we've learned a great deal about our, our weakness. We saw that before we become a Christian, our depravity, our slavery to sin, but we've also seen that after we turn to Christ, that there's still a great weakness that we have. We're still tied to sin. There is remaining sin within us. We cannot be completely rid of it in the end of Romans 7, if you remember that. Paul was saying, basically, sometimes it feels like we're beating our head against a wall. We are weak, left to ourselves. We would not be able to, I think I'm on solid biblical ground to say this, we would not be able to truly beat even one sin and come to godliness. We can adjust behavior on our own, but the spiritual strength to bring about true godliness, to do things that, that, that truly honor our Lord, we are just incapable of. It, it's a rock that is too heavy for us to lift. Left to ourselves, we are incapable of it. We are weak. And so what God has done is given us a remedy for this. And the remedy is he has sent his spirit to work grace within us. So what does he do in us? Well, we see Jesus say things like, you know, when Jesus resurrected and he spent those 40 days on the earth before he ascended into heaven and he was communicating the church's mission, the great commission to go to the ends of the earth, make disciples of all the nations, this is a mission we've been working on for 2,000 years and we're not done yet. This is a mission that comprises in massive amounts of resources, energy, time. Jesus communicated that to the apostles, but then he told them, don't start yet. You can't begin yet. Why? He told them, wait, wait for what? The Holy Spirit had not yet been sent. God was doing all of these things on purpose to make points. If they would have begun before they received the Holy Spirit, they not only would have failed, they would have hurt the cause of the Great Commission. What Jesus said was, Acts 1.8, that's the theme verse of the whole book of Acts, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. We see the New Testament show that even if we're gonna do something so simple like we engage in ministry that's part of being a believer. We, we engage in helping others, sharing the gospel with the lost, serving God's people, caring for the poor. We're told in scripture that even something so simple as to give a word of encouragement, we lack the spiritual strength to do it and there be a godly effect that comes from it. Like we are weak. That is really, really weak. We cannot even accomplish something so little as that. We cannot put our next sin to death in our own strength. We need the grace of his spirit. 
in John 14, and by the way, John chapters 14, 15, and 16 is probably the place that we have the most theology given to us about who the Holy Spirit is and his work. But in John 14, one of the things Jesus said is, I will ask of the Father and he will give you another. Most of our Bibles translate the next word that comes there as helper. I'll give you a parakletos is the Greek word. And we don't have an exact English word that matches what this is in the Greek. Helper's a good translation, but it's more than that. I will give you a comforter, an advocate, an intercessor, one who will come and, and aid you. He said he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That means, Christian, if you tomorrow evening have Bible study with your children and you share the gospel with your kids, there is no benefit that will come unless the Holy Spirit aids you and comes to your children so that it is received. Nothing, no good will happen. No godliness will be accomplished apart from the Spirit aiding us, empowering, enabling us. Jesus is building his church. Jesus is using us to build his church. But it would not happen if he did not send his spirit to us. You and I, the way we will grow the next millimeter in godliness is by the help of the spirit working in us. He's not gonna do it for us. God has so designed it, he's chosen to work that we are to fight, we are to struggle, we are to labor, we are called to go do things. There's no sitting back on a couch and just being like, oh, now that I know it's him, Go ahead, Holy Spirit, make me holy as we turn on the TV. Doesn't work like that. The way that he has chosen to work is we got to bend down and grab the rock. It's too heavy for us to lift. But our job is to bend down there, grab that thing, start pushing, feel like our back's about to pop. And the Holy Spirit aids us. It's too heavy for us, but he is working. He is aiding God has decided he's not going to do it for us. We work and in a mystery, we participate with the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That language is used in the New Testament. He is urging us, pressing us, inspiring us. Bible shows we can resist the spirit, we can quench the spirit, that's biblical language. He's not going to make us, but he is wooing and stirring and awakening, urging, pressing, drawing, inspiring. So let me bring some application here at the end. What we're shown is the living God has come to abide with you who are in Christ. He is living in you, but the question is why? It is not in order to come and make our lives easier. In fact, the Bible shows it will be harder. It is not. God does not come alongside of you so that you can get her done. You can live your best life now. To, to quote verse 13, if you are living your best life now, you must die. He does not come in order to help me accomplish my ambitions the Holy Spirit does not come alongside of you so that you can reach for the stars and accomplish your dreams. 
He comes in part so you will die to your dreams. He comes in part so that our selfish ambitions, these things that I want to accomplish with my life, will die to them. We'll see the purposes of God and we'll get our lives, our ambitions in line with his ambitions. It is just so frustrating. I, I, I try to be careful not to be you know, judgmental of, in these kinds of things, but you know that there is this constant movement of presenting God that all he wants to do is help you accomplish your goals. That's nonsense. You, you gotta die to your goals if they do not match God's goals. We have got to bring our thoughts, our desires, our ambitions, our goals, our purpose in line with his. The spirit lives to exalt the name of Jesus. Guess what he's going to do in us? And, and I've mentioned here throughout, um, as we've talked about the work of the Holy Spirit, I, I've, I've mentioned the way that he comes and aids us to work, to serve, to participate in the Great Commission, build the kingdom of God. There are other passages in the Bible that talk about those things. Specifically, what Romans 8 is focusing in on, though, is this. He works to make us holy. You will exalt the name of Jesus by growing in holiness. You will magnify God by bearing much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. Holiness matters to God. If holiness matters to God, it's got to matter to us. If obedience is a big deal to God, then it's got to be a big deal to us. God expects us to be holy, calls us and commands us to be holy. He has worked this miraculous work of sending his spirit in order to make us holy. We have got to adopt this as a life goal. It has got to matter to us. And we have to come to see that if this, is his des this desire is part of his work to bring us to everlasting joy, God working to make us holy is him working to bring us to great joy. But if you make the overarching principle that you think of all of this as God just wants me to be happy, you're going to lead to some really dumb things. You're going you're gonna to pursue your own dreams, your own ambitions. First and foremost, in this life, he is working to make you holy. There are benefits that come to that in this life, but the greater, the greater issue is what it will produce in the ages to come. When God makes us holy, he is bringing a greater resurrection. There will be more happiness to come by the holiness he works now. Live in line with the purposes of God. Holiness matters, let's make it matter to us. God has given us his spirit to lead us into God's will for our lives. And if you are here this morning and you have never taken that first step to come to be in Christ, to receive salvation, to be made right with God by turning to Christ to be saved. This is the very first thing the Holy Spirit is going to lead you to do. If you are sensing within you any kind of stirring whatsoever to respond, make sure you do not think, well, I need to leave here and go be a good boy and then I will gain eternal life. You will not. 
What must happen is right now in this moment, respond by turning. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Cry out and ask him to save you. And then God will begin a work of transformation. And the invitation that I so often give is this. We're going to close here in a word of prayer in just a second. If you want somebody to talk to, find me before you leave. You don't have to pray with the preacher in order to be saved. But if you want somebody to talk to, that can be helpful. But look to Christ. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, thank you for... Yet another miracle, another grace that we're seeing in your word that you have done in us, your people. Father, I pray that we will walk by your spirit. We will live according to the spirit, not by the flesh, and that we will put our sins to death. Grow us more and more in the knowledge of these things, to, to know what is happening, but then, Lord, to obey, to respond, Lord, as your spirit leads us. Please bless and give us help, and we ask all these things through Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you. Have a good week. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.